The Wiser Podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, and welcome back to The Wiser Podcast. I'm Cizu Mbofu Welsh. Sisonke Msimang is the renowned author of Always Another Country, A Memoir of Exile and Home, and The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, and is a writing fellow at Wiser. In this podcast, she explores the journey of writing Winnie Mandela. This episode is released in tandem with another by Professor Shireen Hasim, who juxtaposes Msimang's work against her own writings about Matigizela Mandela. I am so pleased to think together in this way, with colleagues and friends who live across and between South Africa and Canada and Australia, settler societies, all of them. And I am grateful for the opportunity to record these thoughts in a moment that is defined by the radical constraints of COVID on the one hand, and the radical, if evasive, possibilities presented by the American Black Lives Matters movement on the other. If ever there were a person who embodied the kinds of contradictions that have upended 2020, it is Winnie Mandela. And so in many ways, I have felt her spirit hovering over this year of uncertainty as activists have marched in America, as statues have been toppled in Europe, and as unemployment figures have ballooned in our beloved South Africa. In the first part of this series, Shireen Hasim sketches a biography of Winnie Mandela's political life. And I want to build on this and to map out the ways in which Shireen and I address similar themes about Winnie Mandela, but approach them in fairly different ways. And I want to outline my approach to Winnie Mandela as a subject and to talk about the idea of intimate accountability, which is how I framed the process of writing and thinking about Mum Winnie when I decided to write The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela in uh, 2018. I decided to write a book about Winnie Mandela in the immediate aftermath of her death in April 2018 because I was so shocked by the responses to her passing. I shouldn't have been, but I was. Suddenly it seemed that our national conversation was filled with the hatefulness of a generation of racist white South Africans whom, frankly, I had forgotten existed, those who had never accepted the legitimacy of black majority rule. It felt as though they wanted to deny her dignity, even as she was in the midst of the sacred act of dying. There seemed to be no reprieve from their anger and vitriol. In the days after she died, I was reminded that South Africa had changed far less than I had imagined. It seemed as though all that had remained unresolved since the end of apartheid was once again in the foreground. And it wasn't just conservative old white men. Older black men like Thabo Mbeki and Mondli Makanya seemed incapable of even, for a short while, respecting her life's work and seeing her as a woman in full rather than as the archetypal fallen woman. She was subjected to the ridicule and scorn that is heaped onto women who are too noisy, too public, too messy, and too aggressive. And yet, she was also a hero to so many young women who were themselves messy and loud and sexually liberated. And so in an attempt to feel my way out of the shock and perhaps as a way of trying to understand how we had arrived at a moment of such profound rupture in which she was so deeply beloved and so overwhelmingly hated, I decided to write about her. Shireen's work on Winnie Mandela was certainly the scaffolding onto which I clambered as I wrote. 
the scholarly work I leaned on most heavily as I tried to respond to a public moment that felt wildly out of control. Shireen's work, and in particular an excellent essay called Winnie Mandela, A Life of Refusal. It's available online or uh, for free if you just want to Google it. Um, this essay provided me with crucial language. It gave me an analytical frame. Indeed, the very term refusal was incredibly helpful because Winnie didn't just resist. Many of us resisted. Winnie Mandela simply refused, and she did so frequently. In some ways, I was intimidated by the scale of the task of writing about her. The subject herself is larger than life. Often, as I wrote, I thought about her displeasure and wondered what she might think of the liberties I was taking. I was also aware that Winnie Mandela had been the subject of much important thinking by other feminist scholars, and I wondered if there were too many Winnie Mandela books. There were, of course, also her own words. Part of My Soul Went With Him, published in 1984, and 491 Days, her prison memoirs, which were published in 2014. What more might I say, given the intense interest of so many feminist academics? Um, and of course, there was the erudite and always compelling Jabulo Ndebele's book, The Cry of Winnie Mandela, which was important, but felt as though it might have represented another time, another era. I have heard some chatter in the last few years about the fact that there are so many other important figures in South African history, so many other women to write about, and yet Winnie takes up so much space. And while I understand the sentiment, it is also the case that with every new book that is written about Nelson Mandela or Abraham Lincoln, it is apparent that there are intellectual merits to considering their legacy. No one justifies writing about big men, and yet significant interest in one woman is always deemed too much. So in the end, I wrote about her. And mainly I did so because there wasn't yet a book that did what I wanted to do with her life, with her story. In her reflections in part one of this series, Shireen notes that Mamwini's story is full of private trauma and public irresponsibility. And this is certainly the case. From the perspective of a storyteller, the emotional highs involved in trauma and irresponsible behavior are crucial for moving a plot along, and so I am, of course, attracted to this. But my deeper attraction to Winnie is less about trauma and drama and much more about her steadiness. I wanted to examine how she both challenged and confirmed the myth of the strong black woman. Black women are often expected to bear their traumas in silence. Indeed, the strong black woman isn't simply strong because of the burdens she carries. The archetypal black woman is strong because those burdens are carried in silence. Winnie's allure for me as a writer lay in the part of her that was silent. I was curious about the times when her burdens were too large to speak. I wanted to write about the interior life of a woman who was notoriously vocal and yet who managed to always hide in plain sight. There is an inscrutability about Mamwini, which means that although she was instantly recognizable, she remained, until the very end, profoundly unknown, perhaps unknowable, like all of us. So Shireen's academic work on motherhood and nationalism helped to set me on a path that gave me a way of thinking about Winnie that was historicized and that allowed me to see the lines that she crossed and the ways that she has always subverted and confirmed stereotypes. 
And of course, while the intellectual life of a project is important, it's always the arc of a story that intrigues me and that determines whether or not I'm going to take something on as a project. In any case, ultimately, the deciding factor for me was that I wanted to write a love letter to Mamwini. I wanted to gather her in my arms in literary terms and hold her. And I know it sounds it, but I don't mean it in a sentimental way. I wanted to embrace her as a way of holding her accountable to myself and to others who admired her. I wanted to engage her without being adversarial, to love her as a starting point and to move from there into a deeper kind of conversation than is often possible in the public realm. The power of writing, and of books in particular, is that on the page and within the covers of a book, one can write all sorts of things that are not so easy to speak out loud. Had I known Mamwini, or had I interviewed her, I might never have had the courage to say aloud what I have written to her in my book. This sort of intimate accountability is, I think, what the TRC had an opportunity to create in the 1990s. But the Truth Commission was so deeply invested in the idea of forgiveness, of reconciliation, not always, but often, that it let the facts, its search for the facts, overwhelm the truth. Winnie appeared before the Truth Commission for nine days, and each time she spoke, her voice bristled with rage. There was no space in that process for anyone to hear Winnie Mandela's truth. She was expected to demonstrate contrition because those were the terms of engagement. But she wasn't sorry. How could she be when the TRC sought to create moral equivalence between her actions and those of the apartheid state? She rejected this outright. Her refusal to play that game. Her refusal, in fact, to ask for forgiveness in a forum that was seeking to make her sacrificial lamb a stand-in for all the mistakes made by the liberation forces provided a defining moment in the life of the TRC. It also gave energy to a critique of the TRC that has continued to resonate amongst many black South Africans. Her radical refusal at the TRC became a metaphor for so many of her other refusals. Her refusal to be seen as a neo-wife, her refusal to submit to the will of the apartheid police, her refusal to be consigned to the role of a loving mother, her refusal to forgive when there were so many grudges to be nursed. In terms of style, I opted to write to Winnie, and I wrote to her in the register of the familiar. As a South African woman who grew up in exile, I was sheltered from the harm that the ANC did to communities across the country in the 1980s. And so I don't carry horrible memories. Winnie Mandela was part of the country of my imagination when I was growing up outside of South Africa. And so I didn't have to reckon with the consequences of her actions in any material way. I was not tethered to the violence that she wreaked on those who never left home. In my writing, I am forever trying to write my way into a place of belonging. I was able to write about Winnie as though I knew her because that has been my lifelong practice, to imagine myself at home in the company of loved ones. And it continues to this day, this distance now in these COVID times, more poignant than it has been in, in years. Exile made me a sister-outsider of sorts, although not in a strictly Lordian way. Still, having grown up elsewhere, I am at once a daughter of South Africa and a stranger to her. And so my writing is always refracted through this lens. My writing on Winnie especially so, because she was such a uniquely South African political phenom. 
Where Shireen is able to write with the distance of academia, I write into the imagined familiarity of my desire to have been here. I write myself back into South Africa as though I had always been by Winnie's side, as so many other black South African women were. Where I'm interested in redeeming Winnie Mandela, Shireen is not. I'm desperate for her to be better than she was, and Shireen's work is far more circumspect. She's able to write about Winnie as part of a tradition of women like Winnie, who have deployed and subverted matriarchy and motherhood narratives to create more space for themselves in the political terrain. She explains how Winnie Mandela did something extraordinary. When nationalist discourse said women can only be involved in politics as mothers, Winnie agreed and then asked what kind of mother would not carry a gun and kill to protect her children. Winnie refused to be bound by motherhood as a passive idea. She subverted and pushed and created the space that has allowed so many young women today to be unequivocal in their fem feminism. As we prepared for this series, Shireen described Winnie as the feminist ancestor of the women of this generation. And I think this is very much the case. And yet, of course, there is nothing easy about embracing Winnie. She does not always want the intimacy that we seek to foist upon her. Indeed, often in her life, she did not deserve the elevation that we have posthumously granted her. As I write at the end of my book, The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela, in a perfect world, Winnie's place is not on a pedestal. She belongs, I believe, with all of the rest of the sinners who occupy the world around us. In this sense, her resurrection and our desire to make her a hero are both sad and beautiful. Winnie's resurrection is a shining monument to the work of nation building that is still not done. I'm willing then to raise her up for this interregnum, for the long pause between now and the moment at which our society is able to tear down those whose sins were worse. I am prepared to raise her up in the hopes that one day South Africans might ethically and in good conscience take her down off that pedestal. I look forward to that day.